0: It's 6pm on the 7th of February, 1947, London. The cold wind bites hard and snowflakes swirl in the air. It's the UK's snowiest winter of the 20th century. Large parts of England have been swathed in the stuff for over a month now, causing chaos on the country's roads and railways, and there's more to come. Mr. Snell, the manager of the Midland Bank in Kentish Town, ...has finished his work for the day, and is making his way home in the early evening gloom. He takes the same route as he does every night. He's a man of routine. He alights from his train at Woodside Park Station, Finchley, and shows his season ticket to the guard. The cold travels through his smart, leather work shoes as he walks down a secluded path towards the main road. Large, fluffy flakes of snow drift by, falling softly onto his bowler hat, the shoulders of his overcoat, even settling on his thick moustache. The path is silent, except for the soft crunch of his own footsteps. But then he hears it, like an echo of his own feet, but out of time. It's the sound of other footsteps, and they're not far behind him. He tells himself not to look back, but are they getting closer? He had seen two big, rough-looking men get off the train at the same time as he did, Usually that wouldn't concern him, they're at a train station, travellers come and go. But this was different. He had exchanged glances with them, or rather, an icy stare. It had seemed as if they were taking more than just a passing interest in him. Now he's sure of it. Feeling his anxiety building, he begins to walk a little faster. He thrusts his hands into his pockets and feels for his two sets of keys, one for the bank and one for his house. Perhaps they could serve as a weapon if it came to it. The job of bank manager has its risks. There's always the chance someone will see him as an easy way to get to the money in the vaults. He's now convinced he's being followed. Still in a slight glance over his shoulder, he sees them. The two men had matched his pace, but now they're gaining on him. He pulls his overcoat tighter around his slim frame as he reaches the main road and looks to see if there is anyone else around. Nothing stirs. As he steps onto Holden Road, he sees a green van parked nearby. There are two men in the front seats. But when they see him, they seem to sit up straight, their faces set like stone. That same icy stare. The bank manager takes a deep breath, his heart racing. There's two men behind him, two men in the van, and the keys to the bank in his pocket. He doesn't just sense something terrible is going to happen. He knows it. You see, the thugs who are closing in on their prey are in for a little surprise. What these crooks don't know is that in spite of appearances, this smartly-dressed man isn't Mr. Snell, the bank manager, at all. The anxious-looking man in the bowler hat is, in fact, undercover Detective Sergeant Bill Deans of Scotland Yards ghost squad. He has bravely, or perhaps foolishly, put himself in harm's way in order to lure in these ruthless thieves. But it's now four against one. And it looks like harm is exactly what Detective Sergeant Deans is about to run into. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. is a critical moment for the newly formed undercover unit known as the Ghost Squad. They use high-risk, high-reward tactics, which, if they pay off, could lead to arrests and commendations. But if they fail, well, that's another matter. When the squad gets wind of an audacious bank heist, they immediately set about planning how to foil the crime and catch the criminals involved. Switching out the fearful bank manager, Mr. Snell, for their own redoubtable Sergeant Deans, is a bold move. He puts his life on the line for the good of the Force. But will it pay off? Or lead to disaster? It's a high-stakes game. But this is exactly the reason the Ghost Squad has been formed. It's been three years since the Second World War ended, a time which brought a huge escalation in crime. Looting, the blackouts, and a desire to get scarce luxury items all played a part in the expansion of criminal activity. But now, even though the war is over, people struggle against austerity. Alcohol and cigarettes are in low supply and very expensive. Even basic goods such as sugar, bread, and potatoes are rationed. People steal from their places of work, coupons are forged, bribery is rife, and stolen goods exchange hands. The black market is thriving. It's a backlash against the misery and losses of the war. The Metropolitan Police Force has lost over 4,000 men on distant battlefields. There's just not the manpower to overcome the levels of lawlessness they're now facing. Something needs to be done to tackle this shocking upsurge in crime. Something revolutionary. Enter the Special Duty Squad. It's the brainchild of Percy Worth, the chief constable of the Metropolitan Criminal Investigation Department. He has a vision an experienced group of officers, all with their own informants, who will infiltrate organized gangs in the underworld. A sleek, swift, secret unit who have eyes and ears all over the capital. He chooses his men from the Flying Squad, an elite, highly mobile department who operate all over London to form the foundation of the new team. These men would remain anonymous and out of the public eye. They wouldn't have to blow cover by arresting anyone or given evidence in open court, they wouldn't divulge their sources either. Instead, intelligence would be fed back to divisional CID officers who would arrest the criminals, and the special duties squad would continue their operations unhindered. Funds for informants are doubled because Worth knows that it's the best way to oil the wheels of detection. Chief Constable Worth tells them, go out into the underworld, gather your informants, do whatever is necessary to ensure that the gangs are smashed up. We will never ask you to divulge your sources of information, but remember, you must succeed. The Daily Herald claims in January 1947 that just after a year in operation, the special duties squad has been responsible for 180 arrests and convictions, and their recovery of 25,000 pounds worth of stolen property, mainly jewelry and furs. The papers tell the public that the job of the squad is simply to disappear into London's underworld and mix with thieves, receivers, and gangsters in their own haunts. They are a hidden, lethal weapon in the war against crime. It doesn't take long for the press to rename them the Ghost Squad. It's Friday the 7th of February 1947. Detective Inspector Len Crawford has called his team together for the morning briefing. Crawford joined the Metropolitan Police in 1927 and has had three tours with the notorious flying squad before taking command of the new special unit. The former Royal Navy telegraphist is 45 years old and just over five foot nine. What he lacks in height, he makes up for in experience and courage. He has 29 commendations under his belt, including one for overpowering a dangerous IRA man and then calmly defusing a row of ticking time bombs. He has a reputation for being tough and cunning, and he's going to need everything he's got to deal with the case ahead of him. Having gathered the troops, D.I. Crawford tells his detectives that he's just received information about a planned bank job from an informer. Crawford doesn't share his source, and no one asks. It's an unwritten rule in the squad. Informers are kept anonymous. He lays out the intel in all its stark detail. A six-man gang is planning to kidnap Mr. Snell, the manager of the Midland Bank in Kentish Town, on his way home from work. The job is planned for a Friday night, when the robbers believe the strong room will be full after the working week. The idea is that two of the crooks will follow Snell on the train and subdue him as he leaves the footpath from the station. Then two more of the gang will be waiting in a green van on Holden Road. They plan to bundle him into the vehicle and take his keys to the vault. It's unclear what they intend to do with their hostage. The whole gang will rendezvous at the bank, steal the money and escape in the van. It's information from a reliable source. The question isn't if it's going to happen, but when. DI Crawford delegates tasks and soon a plan is starting to take shape. Detectives are slowly building up a picture of the gang. They already know the identities of some of the men involved, 24-year-old William Ernest Hudson, a van driver, and William Henry Stevens, a 41-year-old laborer. The ringleader is Jim Cunningham, a 34-year-old fitter from Walthamstow. The names of the rest of the crew are still a mystery. The officers are particularly concerned about finding what the gangsters will do with Mr. Snell after they abduct him. It's highly unlikely they want to add murder to the list of offenses, but you never know. If they beat him up or stash him somewhere, it could be a matter of life and death if they don't get to him fast enough. As the detectives carry out their assignments, D.I. Crawford ponders the plan. He hasn't decided on the best way to tackle the problem yet, but he's given orders for a surveillance car at the train station and he wants WPC Winnie Sherwin and other officers to be on close observation. DI Crawford's next task is to pay a visit to the unsuspecting bank manager Mr. Snell and explain the situation. He asks Detective Sergeant Bill Deans to accompany him. As they're about to leave the office, the telephone rings. Crawford answers. He remains silent, listening, his expression serious. He replaces the receiver. It was his informant. The job is on for tonight. They've little time to plan its action stations. At midday, Mr. Snell, the manager of the Midland Bank in Kentish Town, is called to head office as a matter of urgency. There, he is met by the chief investigation officer of the bank, Detective Inspector Crawford, and Detective Sergeant Bill Deans. When Mr. Snell finds out what's going on, he becomes visibly distressed. It's not every day that you find out you're going to be beaten up and robbed. D.I. Crawford also has his concerns. He hasn't told Snell that he'll be abducted and left for dead somewhere in the snowy countryside yet. Snell is a nervous, frail-looking man. There's no way he'll withstand a brutal assault like the one the gang have planned for him. The snout, as the police informers are known on the streets, has told Crawford that the criminals have been observing the bank closely. They've watched the bank manager and studied his habits. There's no way Crawford can take Snell out of the equation without raising suspicions. If the robbers realize he isn't where he's supposed to be, they'll know something fishy's going on. Crawford still hasn't decided on the best plan of action. Can they really protect him? He watches Sergeant Deans trying to reassure the quivering Snell. Crawford can't help but compare the two men. At 5 foot 10, Deans and Snell are of the same heights and they have similar slim builds. Both have dark hair and sport a thick mustache. Sergeant Deans bears an uncanny resemblance to Snell. In fact, he's almost a dead ringer. And then it suddenly occurs to Crawford, what they need is a decoy. Hey, it's Carter from Cold Cases, here to tell you about a very special crossover I'm doing with Sarah Turney and the fantastic series Disappearances. In 1959, nine hikers mysteriously died in Russia's Ural Mountains. Over 60 years later, we're still left wondering what exactly happened on Dyatlov Pass. Sarah and I are teaming up to take a closer look. If you're a ParCast listener or a true crime fan, this episode is for you. Follow Cold Cases and check out our deep dive into the Dyatlov Pass incident today. Listen for free only on Spotify. William Hosey Deans, known as Bill, has been in the force for 15 years, and he's already gathered 10 commendations during his time as a detective. He joined the Ghost Squad a year ago, on the day it was formed. He has experience of clandestine operations, he knows the score, and he's very capable. Crawford takes him to one side and puts forward his suggestion. Deans could easily convince the gang that he's Snell, as long as he keeps his mouth shut, to hide his strong Glaswegian accent. It's a huge ask. Deans has a family to think about, his wife, his eight-year-old daughter and three-year-old son. If anything happens to him, what will happen to them? Will he risk his own safety, maybe even his life, to lure the gang in? After all, if he accepts the job, he'll be the one facing the criminals on his own under the threat of violence and abduction. Of course, he agrees. He's not blind to the dangers, but this is the reason he joined the ghost squad in the first place. High risk, high reward. The I Crawford smiles warmly at Bill Deans and pats him on the back. He just hopes he hasn't sealed the young detective's fate. It's mid-afternoon, back at the yard. Deans stands in the office, wearing a suit and coat that are very similar to Snell's. In his pockets, beside the keys, he has Snell's season ticket for the train, bank letters in the manager's name, a ten-shilling note, and four half-crowns which are all marked so they can be traced if they're stolen by the criminals. He wears a pair of horn-rimmed spectacles, just like the bank managers, with plain glasses in the lenses. Deans also wears a bowler hat, very similar to Snell's, although this one has been reinforced with padding to protect his head, just in case. Deans has already familiarized himself with the route from the bank to Snell's home. Any hint of hesitation might give the game away. He has to look and act exactly as Snell would if they're gonna pull this off. He will take the pathway from the station to Holden Road, cut through to Avondale Avenue, turn right into Argyle Road and arrive at Snell's house. Deans even studies the way the manager walks. One can only guess the fear he's feeling, but his courage is evident to the whole squad. Crawford stresses the necessity to apprehend all of the gangsters simultaneously. It's essential. If just the kidnappers are arrested, the two at the bank would get away. The snout has made it clear to Crawford that the organizer of the crime, Cunningham, would be involved in the actual kidnap. He's Crawford's main target. If he isn't arrested, then what would stop him recruiting a new gang to do the job? The plan to thwart a well-thought-out robbery, rescue Deans, and arrest six professional criminals is meticulously set out. Now they just have to put it in place. Detective Sergeant Deans arrives at the Midland Bank. It is an unusual two-story curved building that sits at the apex of Camden High Street and Kentish Town Road. Windows curve around its upper floor and pillars brace the main entrance. Next door, standing in stark contrast, is the remains of Camden Town Tube Station, which was destroyed by a wartime bomb. He looks around to make sure there's no one watching as he lets himself in through a side door with the keys Snell gave him. He'll change into his costume in one of the offices, and then he'll have to wait until it's time for him to catch the train. Sat in Snell's office, he waits for what seems like an eternity, checking his watch every five minutes. He might appear cool and calm, but in truth, he's doing his utmost to push anxious thoughts from clouding his mind. Finally, with the evening darkness closing in, he steps out onto the snow-covered pavement and locks the bank door. He can almost feel the hidden eyes of violent criminals burning into his back, studying his every move. He takes a deep breath and exhales, foggy in the winter air. Right, it's showtime. The two men have followed Detective Sergeant Deans from the station, just as D.I. Crawford knew they would. Crawford observes the situation from behind the curtains of a house on Holden Road. He watches as Detective Sergeant Deans rounds the corner and approaches the green van. The snow is coming down harder now. Crawford glances down the street at the red telephone box, which he intends to use to call the other squad officers who are ready and waiting back at Scotland Yard. He's tense, concerned for his officer, but there's also excitement in the air. The ghost squad are about to bag a bunch of thieves. From his vantage point, Crawford can now see the men following Deans. They fit the description given of two men who were seen loitering by the bank earlier. They were being monitored by Ghost Squad officers who watched them as they, in turn, watched Deans locking up the bank. Everyone is in place. WPC Winnie is out on the street with her baskets. Two detectives are in a squad car ready to follow the van the moment it moves, and other officers are waiting at the bank or back of Scotland Yard. Crawford sees the two gangsters move closer to Dean's. The green van's engine flares into life, ready to move. One of the men has something in his hands. Crawford can't tell exactly what it is from this angle, but suspects it's a weapon. His suspicions are confirmed when the thug raises his arm about to strike. But then the unexpected happens. A random police constable comes looming out of the snow riding down the street on his bicycle. He's only one Bobby, and he knows nothing of what's happening here. But on seeing him, the gang are understandably spooked. The two men behind Deans quickly turn heel and disappear into the shadows. Sergeant Deans walks past unharmed and makes his way to Mr. Snell's house in Westbury Road and lets himself in. The two men in the van casually drive away. The I-Crawford roars in frustration. Superintendent Hatherill of Scotland Yard, the boss of the Flying Squad, has entrusted him to run this complex operation. Crawford is going to have to go back to him empty-handed. Although thwarted, he suspects that the gang are not going to give up their plan easily. There's too much money to be made, and Crawford's not going to give up either. He calls the squad together at headquarters. The whole team are exhausted after the rush of adrenaline came to nothing. They might have failed tonight, but next time it'll be perfect, and the Ghost Squad have a whole week to prepare for it. It's the following Friday, the 14th of February, and once again, Sergeant Deans takes on the role of Mr. Snell. Again, the same two men, the Crooks, Hudson and Stevens, follow him on the train. This time, When Deans reaches the main road and sees the van, he braces himself, ready to be attacked. The anticipation is horrible. They could strike at any moment. But to his surprise and a strange mix of disappointment and relief, Deans walks safely past the van and makes it all the way to Mr. Snell's house and once again lets himself in with the keys. The detectives are astonished. D.I. Crawford in particular is mystified. What spooked them this time? Surely they haven't cottoned onto the police presence. He hopes to God they haven't been rumbled. With a heavy heart, all he can do is reset the plan and reconvene on the following Friday. It's now Friday the 21st of February. The weather is atrocious. Snow has been falling for 24 hours and has settled in deep drifts. Newspapers have reported that the sea off Margay has frozen, and it's even been claimed that there are icebergs off the Norfolk coast. Pipes are freezing, people are using their coats as extra bedding, and the army has been called out to clear roads. Luckily for the squad, the train that Dean needs to take is running. The extreme weather will soon stop the trains in their tracks, but it won't stop the robbers. Once again, Detective Sergeant Dean alights at Woodside Park train station. Dressed in his banker's disguise, wiping snowflakes from his false lenses, Dean leaves the station and makes his way along the slippery pathway. He has spotted Stevens and another member of the gang, Victor Stanley Towell, a 27-year-old street vendor, on the platform at Kentish Town station before they get on the same train as him. So he knows they're on the job, but he's flying blind now. The heaviest snowfall and poor visibility means he's totally unaware of his being followed. The silence is deafening, but he still doesn't dare glance behind him. He can't risk it. Deans takes a deep breath, the air cold in his lungs. As he reaches the main road, his heart leaps in his chest. He sees the gang's leader, Jim Cunningham. Now he knows he's in trouble. There's the van, a dark figure in the driver's seat. Deans braces himself, deaf to the footsteps closing in behind him. He offers a silent prayer and puts his faith in his reinforced bowler hat sat on his head. DCR Crawford is in the house over the road. Deans tries not to look, determined not to give the game away. Then suddenly a loud voice splits the snow muffled silence. Right. And then he feels a sickening blow on the back of his head. He's been hit by a sock, filled with three and a half pounds of wet sand. It's a blunt, but highly effective weapon. Deans falls to the ground and the bowler hat spins away into the road. More blows rain down on his unprotected head. Three, four, he begins to lose consciousness. He looks towards the window where D.I. Crawford and W.P.C. Winnie are watching. He's helpless. Two of the crooks pick Deans up and throw him into the back of the van like a bundle of rags. The engine is revved loudly. The men get into the vehicle and they drive away into the night. DCI Crawford and Winnie run out into the street. Crawford furiously gestures to the squad surveillance car to follow the van. But after being parked in the snow for so long waiting, the car's engine is struggling. It's just not kicking into life. They're losing valuable time. Winnie hotfoots it to the telephone box and push the call through to the yard. The flying squad is alerted that the gang is on the move. Details of the vehicle are circulated to other police cars in the area, but they are warned if the van is spotted, on no account must it be stopped. Crawford discovers the sand-filled sock lying in the snow next to a pool of Dean's blood. The reality of Sergeant Dean's situation suddenly hits home. He's put his officer in a world of trouble, and now they're getting away. Crawford's stomach turns slightly, and he swallows the lump forming in his throat. The squad car finally fires up, and Crawford and Winnie go immediately to the bank where they assume the gang is heading. They know the time is now of the essence. The men will need to carry out the raid before Mr. Snell is reported missing and police swarm the bank. There's only a small window of opportunity. But when they arrive at Kentish town, the robbers aren't there. In post-war austerity, there's not many vehicles on the road and the treacherous ice and deep snow mean there's even fewer than usual. But even under these circumstances, police can't locate the green van. It's as though it has vanished into thin air. The Ghost Squad's well-laid plan is falling apart. The robbers are in the wind, headed God knows where, and the biggest concern of all, can they get to Dean's before it's too late? Consciousness gradually returns to Dean's as he is jolted along in the back of the van. Confusion washes over him until he remembers where he is. He can't move his hands or legs, they've been tied together. His scarf is wrapped around his eyes and his mouth is secured with adhesive tape. It's hard to breathe, and he desperately sucks in air through his nostrils. He can smell petrol and dust. With every bang and jostle, his head throbs painfully, and he feels as though he's going to vomit. His body shakes with cold and shock, and the panic kicks in. Did the rest of the squad even see what happened? He could barely see three feet in front of himself. Are they coming for him? As he begins to struggle, something hard is pressed into his side. A gun. Then he hears a gruff, low voice. This is a stick-up. Keep your fucking mouth shut or it's your lot. Sergeant Dean lies still. He hears another voice. Are you sure it's the right bloke? Dean tenses as he feels someone going through his pocket. He's the geezer, right. He's got the keys. The keys are removed, and the hands keep up their rough search, moving into his inside jacket pocket. The robber takes his wallet and fountain pen. Then Dean's watch and wedding ring are removed forcefully. His head is swimming, but his thoughts drift to his wife and children. What was he thinking, putting himself in this danger? Dean feels a cold hand on his wrist, checking his pulse. The hand moves to feel if his heart is still beating. The scarf is briefly lifted from his face, and a torch is shone into his eyes. Dazed and half-blind, Deans sees the man's ear come close to his nose to see if he's still breathing. He looks bad, the man says anxiously. You hit him too hard, Jim. Their leader, Jim Cunningham, replies, It doesn't matter. No one saw us do it. We'll make our way to the bank by cab and bus. You doodle around for an hour, and then dump him. It's like he's just talking about a bag of rubbish. The vehicle pulls over and doors slam before moving off again. Dean slips in and out of consciousness. Sometime later, he has no idea how long, the van stops again. He hears a voice say, We'll dump the bastard here. No one will find him for a while. The doors open and he is dragged out and flung face down in the snow in the middle of nowhere. Broken and battered, for a moment, Deans lies in the silence, wondering if he will ever be found. Then he tries in vain to free his hands and feet, but he soon grows tired and sleepy. He lies still until eventually he passes out from the pain and the cold. Meanwhile, D.I. Crawford and other officers are still at the bank and there's still no sign of the van. It's been 40 minutes since Deans was taken. The whole squad is concerned for the life of their colleague. It is imperative that they locate him. The streets of Kentish Town are empty. It's late and everyone has gone home after the working day. Frankly, it's too cold to be out. The team take up their places in the shadows, waiting, praying the gang will turn up. Winnie and another officer pretend to be a courting couple. They stand arm in arm leaning against the curved wall of the bank, heads together as though whispering sweet nothings. Soon, a young man appears and approaches the rear door of the bank. He looks around before taking a set of keys out of his pocket. He fumbles in an attempt to open it. The keys jangle loudly in the dark empty street. While he's concentrating on the lock, Winnie and the officer pounce and arrest him. He struggles, But they get the better of him and take him to Crawford who is waiting in a nearby squad car. Crawford accuses him of being part of the gang. The young man feigns astonishment and exclaims, me, not me, I was passing along here when two men stopped me and told me they would give me a hundred knicker to open the bank door for them. They gave me the keys. Crawford is not impressed. The man is given a thorough search and a second set of keys and Dean's watch are found. It's all the evidence they need to prove his guilt. Desperate for information about the gang and the location of his missing colleague, D.I. Crawford uses a nearby police van as a makeshift interrogation room. He quickly discovers the young man's name is Richard Beck, a 19-year-old window cleaner, as well as his part in the plot. And that's not all he finds out. The Ghost Squad have secured the bank. Now they act on the information from their prisoner, Richard Beck, to find the van and the rest of the gang. Beck gave them everything, everything except the location of Detective Sergeant Deans, which he insists he has no idea about. But under pressure, he does tell Crawford about a yard in Walthamstow, which has been rented by Jim Cunningham for the purposes of the job. Some officers remain at the bank in case the rest of the gang turn up, while D.I. Crawford and other detectives race off to Walthamstow to see if they can find Deans. Arriving in Walthamstow, they discover the green van parked in the yard. Its radiator is still warm. Officers throw open the back doors, but there's no sign of Deans, only the remnants of some adhesive tape and more blood. But they do find three other members of the gang. They are immediately apprehended. The thieves are separated and interrogated about what happened to Deans, but they're all uncertain of his precise whereabouts. They do, however, find out that the last two members of the crew are at an address in Romford. Might Deans be with them? It's now getting late and Crawford well knows that there's only so long anyone can lie bound in the snow before succumbing to hypothermia. When the last members of the gang are arrested, the most they can tell Crawford is that Deans was dumped in a lane somewhere in East Barnet about two miles from where he was kidnapped. But they only have vague directions. The robbers themselves aren't even sure where they left him. In the end, it's Deans himself that comes to the rescue. After lying in the snow for over an hour, he momentarily regains consciousness. Somehow, with a last mammoth effort, he manages to slip the ropes off his ankles, even though his head is severely injured and his body is numb with cold. He staggers to a nearby house and collapses on the doorstep. Thankfully, someone is at home. The occupier is shocked to find a battered man lying in the snow outside his door. He immediately brings Dean in, administers first aid, and calls for an emergency medic. Dean's is in a bad way. He is concussed and has lost a lot of blood. His skull might even be fractured. He is rushed to hospital and spends the next seven weeks recovering from his ordeal. The doctors say it's a miracle that he survived. The gang, bar one, make statements to the police admitting their guilt. They each confess to having played some part in the planned robbery, but each of them denies the violent attack on Sergeant Deans. On that, they remain tight-lipped. On March the 13th, 1947, all six men are committed to the Old Bailey for trial. The court hears the whole story of the gang's greed and their brutal disregard for the life of an officer. Deans is let out of hospital, briefly, to attend court to give evidence. It must be difficult for him to sit in court and relive the details of the night of his ordeal. Dr. Charles Mervyn Scott gives his expert opinion to the court Sergeant Deans was severely shocked from exposure to the cold on a wickedly cold night and he showed signs of concussion. His condition would be consistent with blows from a sand-filled stocking. Dr. Scott is also of the opinion that had Deans lain in the snow much longer, he would have certainly died. On the 27th of March 1947, all the members of the gang are found guilty of planning a bank robbery and abducting and assaulting a police officer. Each of them is sentenced to various terms of penal servitude. Cunningham and Stephen are given seven years, Hudson five years and Beck four years. Towell and a sixth member of the gang, Henry Edward Jones, a 28-year-old carpenter, are sentenced to three years. The sentencing completed, Lord Goddard, the Lord Chief Justice, asks Bill Deans to stand up and he says, the country, and London in particular are most indebted to you for the extraordinary courage and devotion to duty you have shown in this case. You have added lustre to the already great record of the force to which you belong. I shall make it my duty to call the attention of the Secretary of State to your most commendable conduct. Deans is awarded 15 pounds from the Bow Street Reward Fund and later decorated with the King's Police and Fire Services Medal. Although he would be plagued for years by the effects of the attack, Detective Sergeant Deans goes back to his work at the Flying Squad and his particular duties with the Ghost Squad. Two years later, he's promoted to Detective Inspector and notches up an impressive 18 commendations in a 27-year career with the force. Crawford and 10 of the other officers involved in the operation are commended by the commissioner for what was described as ability and enterprise. Eventually, Len Crawford will become a Chief Superintendent of Scotland Yard. Officers move on, faces change, and members of the team retire. But the case of the Kentish Town Bank Heist cements the Ghost Squad's reputation as one of the most cunning and able units in Scotland Yard's illustrious history. Even if the identities of many of those officers still remain a mystery. time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's the 19th of December 1970 in the affluent London district of Belgravia. Julian Cesse, the tall and elegant butler to Granada TV chairman Lord Bernstein, finds himself in sole charge of his master's grand London residence. Not normally given to inviting guests to his home while Lord Bernstein is in residence, he takes advantage of the fact that his boss is on holiday in Bermuda, when an unexpected offer of a late night visit from a lover comes up, Sesse jumps at the chance. Although homosexuality was decriminalized in 1967, secretive liaisons can be fraught with danger, both social and actual. By morning, Julian Sesse will be dead, brutally murdered in his own home. He falls to Scotland Yard to track his elusive killer. Holland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive producer by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Podcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.